from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. Kicking the World Cup to new heights. Now we just gotta fine tune them to get to that, the highest level that you can achieve for World Cup soccer. How the University of Tennessee is doing it one blade of grass at a time. Begging for answers. People in one rural community of Ohio look for help from state and federal officials following a train derailment and fire. And the debate heats up as the cost of the farm bill surges. When one program constitutes more than 80% of the spending in the next farm bill and thereby effectively crowds out the ability to make crucial investments in every other title, is there really any room left for farmers in the traditional farm bill coalition? How much those costs could rise today on Ag Day. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Both Ag Committees held more hearings last week on the new Farm Bill, including a look at the new nutrition title. This follows the Congressional Budget Office releasing baseline projections for the 2023 Farm Bill budget. Ag Day's Michelle Rook looks at the controversy that followed. Clinton, the CBO's baseline numbers for Farm Bill spending have some analysts saying reforming Title I would mean spending far less than continuing ad hoc disaster assistance. But the debate really heated up over the CBO projections that nutrition programs will cost more than $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years. The House Act Committee estimates that compared to the 2018 Farm Bill and using the CBO's latest forecast, commodity program spending drops 12% under the baseline during the five-year period. Conservation spending will jump 19%. Federal crop insurance goes up 26%. But the big outlay is nutrition programs, with spending increasing 82%. This created a heated debate at the Senate Act Committee hearing on nutrition, with ranking member John Bozeman saying the cost of the farm bill is reaching record heights due to the Biden administration's increase in nutrition spending and the reevaluation of the thrifty food plan. Yesterday's CBO baseline projection shows that the farm bill nutrition programs not the entire farm bill, but the farm bill nutrition programs will cost more than $1.2 trillion over 10 years, which is greater than 80% of the total cost of the bill. When one program constitutes more than 80% of the spending in the next farm bill and thereby effectively crowds out the ability to make crucial investments in every other title, is there really any room left for farmers in the traditional farm bill coalition? Bozeman also pressed the department's sloppy review of the thrifty food plan and the failure to justify their unilateral authority to raise the cost of SNAP by over $250 billion. When the 2018 Farm Bill was done, what, what was the CBL score for thrifty food? Uh, I believe the CBO, I, is, I can't recall whether CBO gave it no score or a... Uh, yeah, so a it, not, was, it was not scored. Not. It was not a cost. So that was the <clears throat> congressional understanding that it would be at no cost. I'm sure USDA provided input to CBO concerning it. And so again, we had a, a no-cost score, and yet this cost $250 billion. Bozeman was also told raising costs is not one of the legislative directives for the thrifty food plan reevaluation. Senate Ag Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow, though, defended the SNAP program, saying the average benefit is only about $6 per person per day. She also defended the reevaluation of the thrifty food plan done in the 2018 bill. 
The bipartisan work we accomplished in the 2018 Farm Bill directed a long overdue reevaluation of the Thrifty Food Plan, not done since 1975, have we updated uh, the assumptions on which SNAP is made. This update increased the average SNAP benefit by less than $2 per day. A modest increase, but one that is estimated to lift 2.4 million people, including 1 million children, out of poverty. However, Bozeman says the administration's lack of good judgment and poor decision-making will make this farm bill a much heavier lift for Congress. He says it also furthers the committee's obligation to oversight and accountability. House Ag Chair G.T. Thompson also wants administration oversight to be a big piece of the committee's mission for this year. He says the baseline underscores what he has been consistently hearing from producers across the country, that in light of the record high input costs and volatile markets and weather improvements to farm policy are warranted. The EPA getting ready for spring, updating its label in several states for the use of dicamba in Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa. There's now a June 12th application cutoff date along with a growth stage cutoff of V4 for soybeans. In South Dakota, the application cutoff is June 20th. Growers and applicators must check on the online version of the label within seven days before application in case there have been any recent state or federal level updates to the dicamba product labels. Now, the head of the EPA visiting rural East Palestine, Ohio last week to see up close the scope of a toxic train derailment disaster in the small town. Now, we met with several officials about their response to the growing environmental crisis. And as Isabel Rosales reports, he also heard from fearful, angry residents who are scared to be in their own homes. We will continue to evolve with the situation and apply the necessary resources to ensure uh, that people are protected. We are here for as long as it takes. EPA boss Michael Regan is in East Palestine to meet with government officials responding to the toxic train derailment and meet with residents, many too scared to be in their homes. People were getting sick. We, we should not have been let back into town until all of this was done. Everybody that came here Tempers and fears were running high at a town hall Wednesday night, even as the EPA says it is closely monitoring air quality and has screened at least 450 homes for contaminants. In the days since the derailment, thousands of fish have turned up dead. Many worry that this controlled explosive release of chemicals from the train has contaminated the town. Officials say it needed to be done to prevent an uncontrolled disaster. They screwed up our town, they're going to fix it. Train operator Norfolk Southern says it will create a $1 million charitable fund and are already cleaning up the site and reimbursing affected residents. We are absolutely going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, and I can promise you that. I'm Isabel Rosales reporting. We're coming off a quiet weekend weather-wise for most of the country. What could we see this week? Meteorologist Chuck Heaver has a look ahead. 
Well, we're going to have some wind around the country. I wanted to show you what the wind gust forecast looks at. First of all, right along here in the center part of the country, you can see winds 20 to 30 miles per hour kind of moving up into the center part and then into the Ohio Valley over by Indiana and Chicago. You'll see wind gusts over the weekend in the 20 to 30 mile per hour range. And here's the root zone, of course, down to the southeast. Things are really cleared out in terms of precipitation. It's wet because we've had all of that rain and off the west coast as well. But in the mountains and, of course, the center part of the country, we are still extremely dry. The good news is, is most of the eastern half of the country is where we normally would be for this time of the year. Okay, so check this out. This is something you definitely don't want to see. Our friend Carol Bauer caught up in the winter storm. Yes, she was caught up in the winter storm that brought these high winds to Minnesota. This video was taken in Clinton. Check out the power line swaying in the wind. Carol says the power was out in the town at the time, and you can obviously see why. And guess what? I'll have more in your forecast coming up. Markets are closed on Monday, but we talk strategy for pricing corn and soybeans coming up next in analysis. And later, looking ahead to the next World Cup, how the University of Tennessee is working to play a role with some tough turf in the country. Ag Day is sponsored by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Steel Closing Wheels, perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Markets are closed today for President's Day, but we take a look at some new crop pricing strategies. Michelle Rook joins us with Darren Fry in this morning's Markets Now. Joining us with Market Analysis, Darren Fry Water Street Solutions. Darren, let's talk about new crop pricing for corn and soybeans. First of all, with the price levels that we're currently at, should we be at these levels with the fundamentals that we have? Well, I think new crop prices are elevated because how high old crop prices are. But, you know, fundamentally, I think things are going to change here. But right now, you know, we've had trouble with Argentina. We've had a Brazilian crop that's come out slowly. And we're still trying to figure out the acreage situation here. So I think prices are hanging out as we set prices in February. But after that, it'll be interesting to see what we do as we roll into March and head toward that planting intention report. Yeah, I was going to say the big keys going forward are going to be acreage, uh, spring weather, and as well demand, especially on corn, because export demand has not been that good. Yeah, I agree totally uh, with, with all three of those points. We do have to get more acres, in my opinion, for corn. I think the soybean harvest coming out of Brazil will pressure values here real soon. And if so, maybe corn can get those extra acres. But I think the insurance prices thus far encourage a few more corn acres than bean acres. That's right. Um, and cotton kind of gets left in the dust here right now at current prices, right? It really does. I mean, we're looking for reduction there, but if we have more price reduction, I think those acres will reduce further. But right now we're looking for a loss of acreage there that will have to go to something. And it'll probably be some corn and soybeans that are picked up in the Mid-South and Delta region. So are there a lot of corn and soybeans that are priced ahead for 23 yet or not? Well, you know, that's really hard to know for sure, but just some anecdotal information as we go out to farm shows, talk to prospects and people that we run into. A lot of people have priced a lot of old crop because of where carry has been. There's been none and there's been a fairly strong basis and elevated prices, but I don't find a lot of new crop has been priced. In fact, some people further west where they had the drought influence last year, uh, they haven't priced anything. And so I kind of fear that 
if we get into good spring weather and corn's going in the ground, we could really see prices decline here into May, June. All right, something to keep in mind. Maybe you need to get something done. Thanks so much, Darren Fry Water Street Solutions. More Ag Day coming up. For marketing strategies specific to your operation, contact Water Street Solutions at 866-249-2528 or online at www.waterstreet.org. All right, let's go up where the jets fly and take a look at the jet stream to give us an indication of what we can expect over the coming week. Most of the Canadian air is tucked up to the north. We'll have some little bit of a cold air intrusion up to the north along the Canadian border, but overall, the country is going to remain really mild, especially for this time of the year. And you see that trend continues Tuesday. Wednesday, we finally get some cold air down into the Mountain West. That'll give us some snowpack out there. And then the East Coast still remains mild. This is incredible. Again, for this time of the year. It is February, folks, but then things eventually, these little cold lobes will work their way across the country. But overall, it's not going to be bad. It's going to be a very mild week. Precipitation-wise, we will get some precipitation here with a frontal boundary in the middle part of the week, and that'll pile up two to three inches of rain in some of the mountain areas in the Appalachians. And then off to the west, we'll get some moisture coming in there. Most of that'll be along the coast or in the mountains and pile up as snow. Here's a snowfall estimate. You can see snow along the Canadian border up to the north, of course, where it's cold and then out to the west as well. Okay, the root zone, I showed you this earlier, but wet out in the California area. Most of the eastern half of the country is in a normal state, a little dry over in West Virginia and eastern Ohio. But look in the center part. That doesn't change, unfortunately. It is very dry there and that's going to continue. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of rain and precipitation moving in that direction. Here's Monday, February 20th, relatively quiet. There's that frontal boundary I mentioned coming through in the center part of the week on Friday, some East Coast residual from that and then down in the Gulf Coast states, maybe some precipitation there. Here's a look closer to home. Well, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 38 and a low of 29, partly sunny skies. Topeka, Kansas, partly sunny, high 60, low 34 and Kennewick, Washington, mostly cloudy, 56, a low 37. The National Farm Machinery Show is a great place to check out the latest and greatest in ag equipment and farm technology. But it was something old that stood out to Machinery Pete, as you'll see next. Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit MachineryPete.com and click Sell Mine. MachineryPete.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online. The National Farm Machinery Show just wrapped up in Louisville, and as you can bet, Machinery Pete was a kid in a candy store. And he found a star of that show that wasn't even shiny and new. Well, on the road this week, folks, reporting from the National Farm Machinery Show in Louisville, having a great time here. It's been three years since I've been to the show. Great to get out there and walk the show halls and get around all that new machinery. And you know me, I look at all that shiny new stuff and I wonder what it's going to sell for at auction here in a couple years. But to me, the star of the show was pretty clear, and it was not any of that big, shiny new stuff. In fact, it was 33 years old. It was that 1990 John Deere 4455 two-wheel drive from Kentucky with only 94 original hours on it, kind of a barn find kind of a deal. The Deere had it there exhibit a huge crowd around it. Um, and of course, people were asking me, hey, Pete, what do you think that baby would sell for today? And that's a very good question. Uh, so if we peel back the onion here, the highest auction price ever on a John Deere 4455 
Uh, so 4455 without a loader actually was a two-wheel drive. Uh, it sold back on December 10th of 21 in Sullivan, Indiana, auctioned by my friends Jeff Boston Auction Service. And that was a 92 model with 1,299 hours on it, so for 91000 uh, bucks. Now, of course, a lot of people were coming up to me saying, Hey, Pete, you remember that sale in Saskatchewan with those crazy low-hour trackers? And I do remember that sale. It was October 28th of 2020, Spears, Saskatchewan, uh, by Ritchie Brothers. And they, it was a retired John Deere dealer, had a couple of tractors. He bought new, stuck them in the shed as investments. And this 92 model Deer 4760 mechanical front, 3.6 hours on it, legit. Sold for $197,028 US. And he also had a 1988 John Deere 4450 two-wheel drive with only 256 actual hours on it. That brought $94,000. 725 bucks. Now that was two and a half years ago and the market has gone nothing but up. Um, now one tractor that I think of that I maybe hang my head on was uh, this 92 model 4255 two-wheel drive that sold uh, just on uh, November 26th in Lenox, South Dakota. It was the last serial number made 4255. Had 3,555 hours on it and sold for $142,500. So if you press me, I'm going to tell you folks, I think it would, this 4455 in Kentucky with 94 hours, it would start at that price, that 4255 price, 142.5, and it would push up towards that 4760 price of almost 200K. All right, thanks, Greg. Still ahead, another turf tale. This time, one that may generate interest around the world. In the Country on Ag Day is brought to you by Pivot Bio. What if you had the nitrogen you need already on seed? Pivot Bio is the first company to apply nitrogen on seed. The nitrogen you need, now on seed from Pivot Bio. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Turf created by Oklahoma State got people talking at this year's Super Bowl, but the biggest sporting event on the planet, the FIFA World Cup just wrapped up with billions of people watching. And researchers at the University of Tennessee's Institute of Agriculture are already looking to the 2026 tournament. As Charles Denny reports, they'll be part of the team growing turf for the soccer fields when the World Cup comes to North America. This experimental turf at UT's Ag Research Center has lofty future plans. Look for this type of grass when the 2026 World Cup soccer tournament comes to North America. Our, the UT brand is going to be on the eyes of half of the world, which is amazing. John Sorokin is a professor of turf grass science and with the UT Center for Athletic Field Safety at the Institute of Agriculture. He's teaming with FIFA, the Federation of Football Association, and his alma mater, Michigan State, to grow the turf for the next World Cup. The tournament will be played on grass, indoors and outdoors, at stadiums in the U.S., Canada and Mexico. And different climates will make consistent turf a challenge. Definitely, you have to use different grasses. Um, Miami, you can't use Kentucky bluegrass like what I'm standing on right now. Um, it's too hot and too humid, especially June and July when the World Cup's going to be happening. So they will, pop, they will be a Bermuda grass variety. The 2026 World Cup will be the biggest ever, going from 32 countries to 48, and from eight stadiums to 16. There you go. 
UTIA has done work that has been used on past World Cup fields, testing hybrid turf systems used by FIFA in 2018. Now this new agreement increases the university's involvement. We've done research, we've been doing research for a long time on soccer ball bounce, ball roll impacts on these surfaces, and now we just gotta fine tune them to get to that, the highest level that you can achieve for World Cup soccer. There are further plans to build a facility at the UT Ag Research Center where indoor turf will be grown and tested. Between now and 2026, UTIA plant scientists have lots of work to do. But already grass is growing, data is being collected, and an opportunity realized. There are big goals around here, you might say. This is Charles Denny reporting. All right, thanks, Charles, and that's all of our time this morning. We're sure glad you tuned in. From all of us here at Ag Dan Clinton Have a great day.